Okay, y'all, let's get started here. Um, hi, everyone. Um, if you don't know me or I don't know you, um, my name is Christina Maxwell. Um, I'm married to Philip, who is the youth pastor here at Fourth Press. So I am a frequent volunteer with our 6th through 12th graders, and it's pretty fun. Uh, we have two children. Jack is three, and Eloise is one and a half. Um, this is my second time to lecture, and I'm excited to be here. Um, yeah, as we examine this difficult text here together, uh, can I just say y'all are awesome for uh, coming back, period. <laughs> um, I just, yeah, want to commend you that. Isaiah is hard, and um, I really admire each and every one of you for um, showing up and wanting to struggle through figuring out what this difficult passage means and um, what these, you know, just talking about these difficult topics. So um, anyway, today we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 9, verse 8, through chapter 12, verse 6. Um, and we're turning to another difficult theme. Uh, last week, we uh, there was a large focus on the fear of the Lord as Isaiah condemned King Ahaz and the southern kingdom of Judah for their sin and faithfulness. faithlessness. This week, the prophet turns to Israel, the northern kingdom, and we get another challenging notion to wrestle through, the anger of God. In the first 17 verses, there is a refrain repeated four times. For all of this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. God is angry, and he's angry with his own people, his covenant community, the church. And I would argue that this is generally a topic we, as Christians, struggle with, the anger of God. We like to think of the mercy of God, the love of God, the grace of God, but not the anger of God. When we do talk about the anger of God, we like to think about God's anger toward his enemies. You know, the nations. Those bad people out there. But we don't talk much about his anger toward the church. Toward his own people. I also hear a lot of talk about the Old Testament God who was angry. But since the incarnation, we say, God is love. Yahweh was angry, but Jesus is loving and merciful. But we forget, don't we? That Jesus got angry. The first example I think of... Um, is when Jesus cleanses the temple shortly before his death. He went to God's house of worship and found the Jews had made the outermost court a busy and loud marketplace. This spot that was intended for the Gentiles to gather and come near to the God of the Jews was being used as a place for profit for the Jews, and it angered Jesus. He turned over tables and raised his voice. Yeah, Jesus yelled at people. Today, we are forced to wrestle with this anger of God. You'll see in our passage that we create a false dichotomy between anger and love, saying they are opposing attributes and that God couldn't possess both, when in reality, anger and love are two sides of the same coin. The opposite of love isn't anger, it's hate. The opposite of love isn't anger, it's hate. God is love. We are right to think that. And consequently, God cannot and does not hate. But God does get angry. In this section of Isaiah, it is clear that God loves people as his image bears, and he cares about how people treat one another, particularly how the powerful treat the vulnerable. And the mis mistreatment of people makes God very angry. 
John Oswald describes God's anger as the heartbroken response of an artist who watches his artistic creations doing things that are not only a violation of his original dream, but are a violation of their very natures. Today, we are going to look at this very long section of scripture through the lens of anger. First, we will see that our sin makes God angry. Second, that God's anger leads to purifying judgment. And third, we will find that God's anger actually becomes our comfort in Christ. Let's start with how our sin makes God angry by looking at God's word to Israel. It is helpful to remind ourselves here who Israel is and where they are in this moment. Israel, the northern kingdom of God's people, also referred to as Ephraim, the largest tribe, has actively rejected the throne of David and separated themselves from the southern kingdom of Judah. They've divorced themselves from God's people and his throne and God's promised Messiah, who will be born through David's very line. They don't trust that God's way will lead to salvation, so they've joined themselves to the pagan nations surrounding them for protection. They've found other spiritual allies. They've also rejected God's cruciform way of life. They are refusing to trust God that living a life of selfless care for others leads to human flourishing, and they've abandoned his ways. This is helpful to know when we get toward is- to Israel's first condemnation, sorry, to Isaiah's first condemnations toward Israel. A lot of eyes. He's condemning their pride and their arrogance. It is only from a place of pride that you say, I know better than God and choose an alliance with someone other than Yahweh. We see this particularly in verse 10. The bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. They see the problems around them, that their nation is being attacked and is losing, and they think, our buildings are falling. The problem must be with the stones. They are so self-absorbed and under the delusion that they control their own destiny that it doesn't even occur to them that the Lord is destroying their land. Pride is a scary thing. John Coven calls it the root of all sin. It causes us to be self-absorbed, and self-absorption makes us passionately concerned with making ourselves look good. Pride leads us to believe that we are in control, that we know best, and that we call the shots, and it prevents us from having a realistic view of our sin and dependence on the Lord. The Israelites are filled with pride and arrogance, and the Lord is angry. Once you've pridefully rejected the Lord, the natural response is to turn your trust to man to look to human leaders for meaning and security. And that is exactly what the Israelites do. In Isaiah's second condemnation of the Israelites, he calls out the way they've praised men instead of God and shows how consequently God will destroy these leaders. The Israelites have placed their trust in men and these men have led them so far astray that neither the strongest among them, the young men, nor the weakest, the fatherless and the widows, will ever find favor with God. They are worshiping man instead of God, and the Lord is angry. The third condemnation is spoken against the Israelites' self-interest and lack of brotherly love. This is why Calvin says pride is the root of all sin. Pride leads to self-absorption, which leads to self-preservation. When you're obsessed with yourself, you do anything to promote your own good and protect your image, no matter what or who is the cost. Isaiah's description of this evil is quite vivid in verses 19 and 20. Through the Lord's wrath, their land is scorched, but God doesn't even have to try that hard to destroy them because they are just fuel to the fire with their evil, not sparing one another, but throwing their neighbor literally into the fire to try and protect themselves. I mean, I say literally, but 
This is, this is a metaphor. This is imagery here. Um, but it's a vivid one, right? It's a powerful one. He describes a, a people intoxicated with prosperity, eating plenty of food but never satisfied. When you are concerned with your good only, nothing is ever enough. There will never be enough money or material items or praise of man or power or prestige to satiate your appetite. And this is what Isaiah is saying, describing, is going on in Israel. And the Lord is angry. Finally, Isaiah condemns the way this pride and arrogant trust in man instead of God and self-absorption has led to great social injustice. They have rejected the Lord's way of salvation and his way of life. The Israelites are now living how they see fit in their own eyes instead of how the Lord has asked them to live. The social injustice described here is the inescapable reality in a society where everyone is focused on themselves. Injustice, like iniquitous decrees, oppression, showing no justice to the needy, robbing from the poor and marginalized for the sake of the rich, and preying on the fatherless, occurs when you, all you care about is self-preservation. When our chief concern is with ourselves, we begin to associate our self-interest with our affinity groups, which results in a lack of concern for the greater good of society. Suddenly, every other people group become a threat to our own power that must be thwarted or stopped. People becomes means to an end, whether it be financial gain or political power. And this makes God very angry. How can we identify with the Israelites here? Remember, this is God's covenant community participating in this sin. God is condemning his church for their pride and self-absorption that has led to the systemic mistreatment and oppression of the weak and vulnerable in their midst. I think this is an appropriate time to pause and ask ourselves, how are we similar to them? Where are we trusting in man instead of God? Where do we arrogantly think we can fix everything ourselves? Where are we intoxicated by prosperity? How is this leading us to mistreat others? How are we participating in oppression of the poor, the weak, the vulnerable, the marginalized? Where are we justifying evil to keep ourselves in a position of power? We have a problem with sexual assault in our society. Two weeks ago, a brave actress came forward and shared her story of being sexually assaulted by Harvey Weinstein, a very powerful and influential American film producer and executive. In the days that followed, 40 women spoke out against Mr. Weinstein and shared their stories of abuse and pain at his hand. The stories are tragic and so sad, and they reveal a deep-rooted problem in America's entertainment industry. But this problem isn't just in Hollywood. Over the past weekend, hundreds of thousands of women participated in a movement called Me Too, where they shared their personal stories of sexual harassment and assault on the internet. It's horrifying to read through all of this trauma and pain experienced by women in our nation, but frankly, it isn't surprising. Our country has a long-standing tradition of looking past assault accusations of powerful men. Another recent example that comes to mind is Bill O'Reilly, a host for Fox News, who just settled a $32 million suit for sexual harassment in the workplace, sending pornographic images and engaging in a non-consensual sexual relationship with a subordinate at the network. As soon as the settlement was reached, he re-signed a four-year contract to continue working with Fox News. Another example is Brock Turner a swimmer at, the Stan at Stanford University who was found not guilty of raping a girl behind a dumpster last year, even though he was caught in the act because the judge deemed that the boy had a bright future. 
But let's go back to Harvey Weinstein for a second, okay? The jury's still out on where his career stands. Only time will tell us what his future holds. But for now, his wife has left him and his corporation fired him, and he's currently at a rehab center for sexual addiction. Quentin Tarantino, a famed director and frequent Weinstein collaborator, was interviewed over the weekend about the allegations against his friend. What he said was astonishing. When asked about whether he knew that this kind of thing was going on, Tarantino replied, I knew enough to do more than I did. He recognizes that he knew that some bad stuff was going on, but to have said something would have hurt his career. Tarantino never could have produced all the movies he's been able to without Weinstein's support and collaborative help, so he kept his mouth shut. He looked past evil to preserve his own power. I want to challenge us with this example to think of the evil we turn a blind eye to to preserve our power. Maybe it's a political or social or professional power. We help maintain a culture where sexual assault goes unpunished by looking past it in these realms. I think Isaiah is showing us today that this makes God angry. We are called to fight against injustice and evil of all forms on both sides, in our neighborhoods and in Hollywood, and trust that even if that puts us in the moral, political, social, or professional minority, God's way is the way to human flourishing. The church must show that we have a holy anger toward all sin and all unrighteousness and all injustice, no matter what the personal cost. Maybe you're on the other end of this today. I use this example because I'm assuming most of us in here have experienced sexism, if not outright sexual assault or harassment at some point in our lives. Hear this today, friends. God sees you and your pain, and he's angry. If you can identify with the weak and oppressed in this passage, perhaps because of the color of your skin or because you're a woman, maybe it's because of your social status or the amount in your bank account, or even because of your political beliefs. Maybe you feel like you've been oppressed in the, chur- in the church. If you've ever been hurt or abused or neglected, I want you to know that you can take comfort from Isaiah's word to us today. The Lord sees injustice and it makes him angry. What Isaiah shows us next is that this anger that the Lord feels towards sin and injustice leads to a purifying judgment. We see in these first 17 verses that Isaiah isn't just describing their sin, but he begins, The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel. When God speaks a word, it happens. Just like when he created the world. When he says something, it occurs. And Isaiah makes it clear. This word is going to fall upon Israel. And he describes the judgment coming for God's people. He describes how the Lord raises up their enemies to attack them. He cuts off Israel from head to tail. The land is scorched and the people devour their own flesh. And finally, he says, nowhere will remain for them to hide. The Lord sees their sins and his hand is stretched out still to strike against his people. It is important to point out here that God controls the whole world and can use the world to purify his church, just as he is here with Assyria. When his people were a nation, he used a nation to bring purifying judgment upon them. So we can ask, what might the Lord be using to purify the church today? I heard a pastor recently give the example of the litigators who fight to bring justice to those who have suffered from the pedophilia that has run rampant in the Roman church. 
These litigators might be outside the church. You know, some of them aren't Christians. And yet God is using them to call out and remove evil and sin from his people. It's worth asking ourselves, do we listen to our critics in this world? Can we handle hearing something harsh about the church, knowing that God can and does use the world to purify his people? As Christians, we should be able to celebrate and champion justice happening, even when the church isn't the author. We should stand for justice, no matter who it is against. Like disciplining our own child for hitting another in the nursery. But this can only come from the humble posture of knowing that sin and evil and injustice exist in our own homes and in the church and in our hearts. This is God's stance with his people. He is angry at his own because he is just. He has covenanted and joined himself to this people and they are misrepresenting his character by this injustice. And in effect, lying about who God is to the whole world. God is pursuing justice even though it is against his own people and is using other nations to accomplish it. And then Isaiah moves on from the sins and judgment of God's covenant community to Assyria to show how they've pridefully neglected to see themselves as merely a tool in God's hand, which will leave God no choice but to wipe out the nation of Assyria. And he does. History tells us that right as Assyria was encroaching upon capturing Jerusalem, God sent a plague and the whole nation was gone. Just like that. God used this nation to harm his people, but they were held accountable for their sins as well. And then we see in the midst of this desolation and destruction that remains from this purifying judgment, a glimmer of hope in the form of a branch. With the devastating Northern California fires on the news right now, I can't help but picture those scenes in my head when we get to this part. Imagine a land completely destroyed by a powerful fire. That land, of course, is Assyria and Israel and Judah, who have all been righteously judged. You can imagine piles of ashes and barren dry land, no signs of life for miles, only the remnants of death, dead people, dead animals, dead plants. It appears like death has won until we get to 11-1, and we see that in the midst of this destruction, there's a stump that bears forth a shoot and a branch that will bear forth fruit. So even after all of this sin and judgment, after all of this plummeting and destruction at the hands of the powerful nations, the true Israel still has a future in this beautiful branch. And this is where we see that the anger of God can actually become our comfort. Who is this branch? Well, Isaiah turns from this metaphor quickly to simply describe him. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth, etc. And from our vantage point, we know who he is describing. He's describing a righteous ruler who entered another desolate and barren scene and created life where there was none, this time in the form of a virgin's womb. He's describing the God-man who lived a life among the oppressed, the outcasted, the voiceless, the poor, and the homeless. 
He's describing the Savior who bore the anger and purifying judgment of the Lord on behalf of all the evildoers described by Isaiah through a painful death and a trash heap on the outskirts of town with criminals on either side, even though he himself never so much as had an evil thought. You see, God loves people. He gets angry at sin that leads people down paths of death and destruction and to mistreat others. But this anger becomes our comfort when we understand that he poured out his judgment on Jesus so that those who have faith in him can be purified from sin. Jesus' perfect self-sacrifice actually satisfied the Lord's perfect justice and turned away the righteous anger of God. And through this satisfied judgment, those united to Christ in faith are purified. We are comforted to know that the only time God has ever stood for injustice is when it was at when it was against his own son. Jesus died so that the oppressors and the oppressed could be freed from their pride and their self-interest and their self-preservation. No matter where you find yourself today, there is justice, grace, and purification of sin for you at the cross. There is grace for the abused and the abusers and even the ones who can say, I knew enough to do more than I did. There is grace, friends. Once we understand this, we can sing with Isaiah in chapter 12, verse 1, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. This comfort changes us. Isaiah continues in his song of praise in chapter 12, verse 4, Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim his name as exalted. The comfort of the Lord causes us to love the things that God loves. It reorders our loves, as Augustine would say. God's love in Christ frees us from self-preservation and it allows us to truly examine our hearts and see our sin. It makes us do weird things like give away our money or sacrifice our time to be close to hurting people, to make known his deeds among the peoples. It causes us to want to stand up against injustice on behalf of those who can't. So we can always know that we are distant from God's heart if we aren't angered by sin and injustice. As Christians, we are called to push through apathy towards sympathy and ultimately empathy. But this first requires that we get to know the vulnerable and oppressed in our midst. Once we trust that God's anger has turned away from us, we are freed from trying to prove, preserve, and promote ourselves. We are free to critically examine the systems in our society and to ask, do they really lead to human flourishing? This comfort gives us courage to say things like, I knew enough to do more than I did, and then to change. Unlike the Israelites... We should be able to trust that God's cruciform way doesn't just benefit the oppressed or the weak, but giving away power and listening to the marginalized actually makes the powerful more like Christ as well. It makes us more human, friends. One of the most beautiful pictures of someone living their life like this today is a man named Brian Stevenson. He is a Harvard Law grad who spends his days making pennies on the dollar and receiving bomb threats in Montgomery, Alabama. He started a nonprofit, the Equal Justice Initiative, which takes up the hard task of providing free legal defense for wrongly convicted or disproportionately punished men, women, and children on death row. Instead of working for a private firm making tons of money, Brian Stevenson has spent his life fighting to change laws that allow children to be executed for crimes 
and helping dozens of wrongfully convicted men and women exonerated from death row. He has recorded his story and the stories of these people in an incredibly inspiring book that I would recommend to all called Just Mercy. But this all started because one summer he took an internship with a nonprofit providing criminal defense for the accused who couldn't afford it themselves. Once he got close, he realized the grave systemic injustice that is occurring in our nation. He began to see that capital punishment means that those without capital get all the punishment. He came near to the voiceless and he was changed. He saw the injustice and he was angered. Isaiah is challenging us today. Start fighting injustice by first listening to the oppressed and marginalized among us. Read their books, hear their stories, take up their plight. So in closing today, let's remember, friends, that there is still sin and evil in each of us, our hearts, our homes, and even in the church. But God's anger has been poured out once and for all on Jesus. And this time, it's his people that receive the purification. Take comfort in this, friends, and let that comfort change you. Change you to draw near to the hurting. Change you to examine your own hearts and ask, Did I know enough? Do I know enough to do more than I'm doing? Together, let's change. Let's let Jesus change us. Let's go move close to the hurting and the needy. Let's hear their stories and let's fight injustice. Let me end in prayer. Dear Lord, we praise you for this hard and challenging and beautiful word to us today. I pray that you would, by your spirit, continue to convict each of us of sin where we need convicting, um, that you would comfort each of us where we need comforting, that we would know that you are a God who stands for justice and that injustice makes you angry. I pray that that would change our hearts. Pray that we would remember that you, um, Lord, have poured your justice out once and for all on Jesus. And for that, we praise you. I just pray that because of that, we would each find comfort and that comfort would change us. Lord, change us. We want to love like you love. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.